Yes, well, good morning, church family, and happy Thanksgiving to each and to every one of you. This uh, delightful morning to be together. Mornings like this are where the psalm says it's better to be in the house of the Lord for one day than a thousand elsewhere. That just makes a little more sense to me. And uh, it's good, good, good to be together. As it's been mentioned today, we are beginning a brand new series where we'll be walking through the whole book of Daniel, one chapter at a time. Daniel is an amazing book. It's also a very complex book for a whole lot of reasons. And it's a unique book as well. It's written in two different languages. It kind of goes back and forth, Hebrew and Aramaic. And and there's a couple of different languages. There's also two totally different genres in there. And so you have to read those different kinds of genres differently. It's broken down into two major parts. And so as we make our way through the book of Daniel, we've broken the series up into two different parts. The first part is we are looking at what, what people will call the narratives of Daniel, the stories of Daniel, where we see God show up and show out and do amazing things in Daniel's life. The second part of Daniel, if you want a really fancy term, it's called apocalyptic literature. How fancy is that, right? Apocalyptic literature. That's the second part. And that's what we're going to be looking at in the new year. So why are we looking at the book of Daniel as a church family? Why commit all this time to this book? Well, there's a couple of different reasons. One is when we learn how God has worked in the past, we can learn to see God at work in the present. Because our God hasn't changed yesterday, today, forever the same. And so we want to see how has he moved in the past because he still longs to move in the present and into the future. The second reason is because apocalyptic literature can be very challenging to read. And we want to learn to read God's word faithfully and well. And the third, and perhaps the most particular reason we want to make our way through Daniel is what we're looking at today. The book of Daniel takes place in a location and in a time where God's people have been scattered, exiled, and removed from their home and brought into a foreign place. They've been uh, uh, evacuated from the place where they were in power and thrust into a foreign place where they have to figure out how do they live their faith. For centuries, God's people had lived in God's land, the promised land where God's rules were the rule of the land. God's values were the values of the city. The culture was largely oriented around God. And now God's people have been exiled and they have to learn how do we live faithfully in a totally different context? How do we live faithfully in a totally different culture with a radically different value system? Does that sound familiar to anyone in here today? You know, I'm, I'm not sure Canada was ever like a thoroughly Christian nation, but I do know this. And people younger than me, you're going to be shocked at what I'm about to say. People my age or older, you know exactly what I'm talking about. When I was growing up, everything was shut down on Sundays. Everything. There was no sports. There was no shopping. There was no restaurants. And a lot of people in the room right now are like, man, that sounds inconvenient. Everything was shut down on Sundays because it was the Lord's day. We're not there anymore. 
We don't live in that reality anymore. Everything was closed. It was Lord's Day. I'm not sure if anyone is here, anyone here is familiar with the Hayes Code, but the Hayes Code were authoritative rules for any media or production company that wanted to put something out to the world. The Hayes Code. All kinds of rules about dancing, alcohol, language, sex, sexuality, what you could show, how you could show it, all of these things. And these rules were in place and in authority everyone had to follow by in, in, up until the 1960s. One of the rules that had to be followed in media was married couples could not be shown in bed together. It was too risque. You couldn't do it. If for the integrity of the show, you absolutely had to have a married couple in the same bed, one of them had to have their foot firmly planted on the floor. That way you know you're risk-free. Now, I don't know if you've turned a TV on recently, but we don't live in that world anymore. The world's changing. The world's changing. For the vast majority of Canada's 156 years of existence, there was a negligible difference between popular societal ethics, priorities, and vision for human flourishing and the church's vision, ethics, and perspective. Very little difference. That's not our world anymore, and I would go so far as to say the more you are about following the way of Jesus, the larger the gap is. It's hard for followers of Jesus to navigate faithful living in this foreign landscape. Some capitulate to culture. Some try to assimilate to feel a part of culture. Some just run away from it cocoon in their own little bubbles of safety with, with people that look, think, act, believe like they do. But as a church, we don't want to capitulate to culture. We don't want to assimilate with culture. We don't want to run away from culture. We want to stand unwaveringly on the word of God and to love this world that God has called us to. That's who we want to be. And that's why we're looking at the book of Daniel. Sound good? Sound needed? Let's dive in. Today we start with Daniel chapter one. The background is this. The year is 606 BC. God's judgment has been extended towards God's people because they were living idolatrous lives. They weren't following God's teaching. They weren't following God's way. And the result was that the big bad Babylonians one of the most fierce empires the world had ever known came and descended upon God's people in Jerusalem and took them to war and won. Rather than destroy everything, the Babylonians, led by King Nebuchadnezzar, carried some of God's people out of Jerusalem and took them to exile in Babylon. And Daniel chapter 1, what we're looking at today, is the picture of how Babylon tried to brainwash God's people out of their unwavering faith and into fitting the mold of the Babylonian culture. Taking them out of Israel and immersing them 
in Babylon and brainwashing them and what that looks like. And just a reminder for every single one of us today, the world we live in, the world around us is still trying to brainwash us, trying to form us. The world around us is trying to shift our affections, shift our attention, and to shape what we desire. And if we want to live an unwavering, if we want to live unwavering lives, we must pay attention to what's going on. So here's what we read. Daniel chapter one, it says this at the beginning. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. I just want us to see one thing really quick from those first two verses. In verse one, it says, King Neb, he won, he took over Jerusalem and brought people back to his hometown. Now, that makes sense, right? That's history. Reading verse one is just reading the headline. War, there was winners, there was losers. That makes sense to us. But verse two, there's a very subtle shift. Maybe you noticed it when we we read through it. Verse two says, the Lord delivered Jehoiakim into his hand. So verse one describes what's going on. In verse two, there's a faithful declaration to acknowledge that even though what's going on, there's something else that's happening here. And in our lives, we all have the choice. We can look at what's happening on the surface level. We can read the headlines. We can see what's going on and say, okay, that's what's happening. Or we can have the faith of verse two to see that there is a God behind every headline. There is a Lord on the throne who is sovereign and reigns supreme. No matter what might be happening on the earth, there is still a God in heaven. We can look at our circumstances and our surroundings and say, oh man, this is the headline. This is what's happening. I'm in exile. I lost. I'm being treated terribly. Or we can choose by faith. Verse number two. And say, well, what is God doing here? Why is God at work here? What's going on? The first step to an unwavering faith is learning to look at the world around us properly. Recognizing there is a God on the throne who reigns sovereign and supreme. When we look for God, we will find him. Whatever it is that's going on in your life today that might make it hard to stand unwaveringly, I, I invite you, I, I believe God invites you even more importantly to say, seek me and find me. You'll seek me when you find me. When you seek me, you'll find me. The story continues on, verse three, it says, then the king ordered Ashpenaz, chief of his court officials, to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. 
He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years. And after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief officials gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And to Azariah, Abednego. All right, so this is where we read about the brainwashing process of Babylon. The very first thing that we read in this process is that God's people are isolated away from their home. Isolation, that's the first thing we see. King Neb, he took Daniel and the crew about 1,500 kilometers away from their home. He took them from the promised land. He took them away from their temple. He took them away from their, from their home, from their customs, from their laws. And, and, and he brought them right into Babylon. It's an attempt by King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian empire to take the Israelite out and to put the Babylon in. And the first thing they do is isolation. And so we see that one of, the, one of the tactics to dismantle unwavering faith is to isolate and to remove from community, remove from worship, remove from the value system. Which means when we gather, when we gather in community to worship and glorify and lift up and declare the name of Jesus and to hopefully bless each other in ministry, this gathering is a declaration of war on Babylon's brainwashing process. This is us showing up and saying, you will not isolate me from God's people. You will not remove the values of God's word from my life. You will not take me from the house of the Lord. Like, I am here. I am here because I need to worship God. I am here because I need to surrender my schedule and my convenience and my sense of autonomy over what I do with my time. I need to surrender that to the Lord every week. I need to show up to worship Him. I need to show up, hopefully, in conversations as we get to know each other in life that, you know, we can, we can what Paul would say, like, depart gifts and blessing and encouragement to each other. Worship God. Bless each other. Refuse the, the brainwashing of Babylon in our lives. This world we live in is a formation machine. And I need to be more formed by the word of God than the word of the world. And that's why I show up. And that's why I think for all of us, church shouldn't just be an option among a whole lot of other options. We show up to be formed by the word of the Lord. Because we don't want to be isolated because we know we're at risk when we're isolated. And so since you all are here, Thanksgiving morning, talk about preaching to the choir, you're the committed ones, you're here. I feel like pastorally I can say this with, with genuine love and maybe a little bit of spiciness. But let me say this. Don't neglect 
gathering as the church. I heard recently that the average for regular attenders is something like 1.7 times a month. Now that number, 1.7 times a month, that number makes a lot of sense if we think we show up here to get something. Showing up 1.7 times a month makes sense if we think we're just showing up to receive something. To get something, to feed a hunger, to feed an appetite. You know, get the Jesus juice or something. Like that, that number makes sense in that context. You know, you go to the fridge a number of times because you're hungry and you need to get something. So that 1.7 makes sense if our perspective is we show up to get something. But let me just say, we don't show up primarily just to get something. We show up because this is a formation practice. We show up to surrender ourselves to the Lord. Saying, you deserve the first and best of my time. You're not an option. We need to show up. If we want to have an unwavering faith, a faith that lasts, we need to be in the Lord's house so that we can learn to go out and be in our own houses. We have to be here. After isolation, we read that they were taught for three years the language and the literature of Babylon. The language and the literature. So step one, isolation. Step two, indoctrination. Three years of teaching, language, literature. Let's send them to college, no summer breaks. That's about how long that was, okay? Learning language, learning literature. Babylon's like, we need to reprogram their minds, We need to immerse them in teaching that will write over the stories that they learned in Israel. We need to reform, reshape their stories, the way they process information. Let's rewrite over the memories of their legacy. And if we aren't careful, church, this still happens. I think in many ways, Babylon's brainwashing tactic through language and literature, is most acutely felt through social media and screens. I don't need to share the data this morning for us to know that the media we consume, the things we watch, the the, the voices that we listen to in in song, in radio, in podcasts, in, in essay, what we listen to, what we look to, what we take in, fundamentally shapes how we view this world. It shapes how we think. It shapes what we believe. If someone broke into my house and took my kids, I would be willing to do all kinds of drastic things to protect them. You know? Someone comes in, takes the triglets. I'm doing whatever I can to go after try and save my kids. Our screens and social media are taking our kids if we're not careful. What we consume, what we take in, the movies that we watch, the shows that we watch, the reels, the TikToks, the, the clips, the, the YouTube, what those things we watch all fundamentally form us degree by degree. 
We need to be careful and intentional about this. What are you taking in? What are you listening to? What language and literature is fundamentally forming the way you view this world? The third brainwashing tactic, from isolation to indoctrination, next we see gratification. Picture this moment, Daniel and the guys. They're taken from Jerusalem, about 1,500 kilometers through the desert, in bondage, as slaves, as captives, being exiled to Babylon. So they're walking through the desert, and all of a sudden in the distance, they just start to see a bit of a a society, and they're like, "Are, are we there yet? Is that a mirage? What's going on? I don't know what is out there. They get a little bit closer and they recognize maybe some palm trees and maybe the captives are like, oh, no, no, that, that's, that's Babylon. That's where we're going. So they get to walk. They walk in. The, the gates of Babylon fling wide. There's palm trees. There's fountains. God's people, the Israelites, they're walking through and like, there's the Babylonian hanging gardens, one of the ancient wonders of the world, right? King Nebuchadnezzar built them. They're walking through and they're like, what is this place? The king's like, hey, come on in, come on in. King's court, just for you. Open buffet, help yourself. Free bar, not even a toonie, it's free. Help yourself. Here's some of my drink. Here's my food. Hey, here's free college. Okay, here's a job. Government job, it's good. You got it, take it. Pension, your life is set. Here's free rent. God's people are brought in and they're offered everything. They're given everything. And one of the things I have learned in my own life by failure time and again, and I've observed it in in, in the people I love, is that health, wealth, and gratification have a particular ability to wean us off of dependency on Jesus. It's really, really challenging to live a life of unwavering faith when everything we need for life doesn't take faith. Don't get it twisted. We, know. we, live, we live in Calgary. Recently, it was released and announced that Calgary is the seventh best city on planet Earth to live. Look it up. That's not me. That's not even a Calgary company. That's like a global thing. They did this study. Seventh, seventh best city on planet Earth to live. If we don't think we are at risk of losing desperation for our dependency upon God, then we are being brainwashed. It's hard to live desperately desirous for the Lord when everything we have is largely available. I know there's a lot of complexities in this room, but for many of us, you know where your next meal is coming from, you know where your water is, and you have a place to sleep tonight. The gifts of God are a great and gracious extension, but we need to be aware of their shadow side risks. Isolation, indoctrination, gratification. The fourth one, it's where we get most personal. It's where it comes most home for us. The final point of attack is their identity. We read about Daniel, Michelle, 
Hananiah, Azariah being brought into the king's court. They're immersed in this regime. And we read in verse 7 that the chief official gave them new names. But first, look at what their original names meant. Daniel, God is my judge. Mishael, who is what God is. Hananiah, Yah has been gracious. Azariah, Yah has helped. Notice Daniel, Mishael, end with El. That's for Elohim, God. God was fundamentally part of their name and part of their identity. Hananiah, Azariah, that is for Yah. Remember we just sang hallelujah? Yah is a way of saying Jehovah. God has been gracious. God has helped. It was part of their name. And when they are brought into Babylon, the chief changes their names. And this is what he changes them to. It says, Daniel, God is my judge, changed to Belteshazzar, which means lady, protect the king. So we move from God is my judge, I live for him, to changing his identity, changing his name and saying, no, Daniel, now when everyone says your name, it means lady, protect the king. Mishael, who is what God is, was switched to, I am of little account. The focus moves away from the great transcendence of the Lord to, I am nothing. Hananiah, Yah has been gracious to Shadrach. I am very fearful of God, right? God was once gracious, now, no, 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 he's not gracious, you're scared of him. Azariah, Yah has helped. No, 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 Abednego, now you help our God, Nebo. Babylon changed their names. But changing their names wasn't just alphabet rearrangement. Changing a name was an indictment on their history. It was an attempt to dismantle their story. It was adjusting a belief system. It was an attempt to communicate a whole new identity. And the names given are direct mockeries of the names they were given by their parents. And I picture day after day, Daniel running through the streets of Jerusalem, doing whatever it was they were doing, just playing. And and his parents are like, Daniel, time to come home. And Daniel's like, yeah, God is my judge. And Azariah, his parents, Azariah. And he's like, yeah, 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 Yah has helped. Yah has helped. It was part of the intrinsic identity of who they were. Their parents placed this teaching. So every time their name was said, they knew who they were. And they knew who God was. Identity spoken into them day after day from their whole community. And now, 1,500 kilometers away, they're being mocked and they're being ridiculed. So let me just say this to you all. Parents, tell your kids who they are or Babylon will. Babylon really, really wants to speak identity into them. Parents, you tell them. 
tell them who they are. It's, and if you're thinking it's too late, it is never too late. Never too late. Friends, tell your friends who they are or this world will. Kids, tell your parents who they are or this world will. If you're married, spouses, tell your spouse who they are because this world desperately wants to. And this world can be really, really loud. So be very, very intentional. Tell the people around you who they are or Babylon will. Because Babylon wants to put all kinds of identity, all kinds of labels, all kinds of meaning on us and ones that fundamentally mock the dignity that God has placed in each and every one of us. And so if you're here and you're like, there's no one in my life to say this to me, let me just fill the gap for right now. You are a child of the creator of the universe. The one who created everything on this earth created you and he loves you and he needs you and he cares about you and he's with you and he sees you and he names you his. You are known and you are cared for by the creator of the universe. And if we are not fundamentally, first and foremost, anchored in our identity in the Lord, we will waver, every one of us. So then, how do we remain unwavering? What does Daniel 1 teach us? This is where the story goes after this brainwashing process. We read this. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine. And he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my Lord, the king, who has assigned you your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, their names from their story, from their childhood, please test your servants. For 10 days, give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and dreams of all kinds. How did Daniel remain unwavering? How did he not compromise? The first three words of verse 8. But Daniel resolved. 
Daniel drew a line in the sand that he refused to compromise and refused to cross over. Daniel was like, I can leave my home. I can go anywhere. I can learn all kinds of things. I can be a part of different kinds of schools. I can be in the king's court. I can learn a new language, but I can't cross this line. And I'm wondering, do you know what the line you can't cross is? What have you resolved to not compromise on? Where is that for you? By the way, Daniel, he was a teenager in this moment. He was 15. What kind of 15-year-old can be taken to a different country from his parents, offered all the food, all the drink, all the luxuries, all the everything you can possibly imagine when mom and dad are really, really far away and say, no, 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 I'm not compromising on that. 15, I know who I am. I know whose I am. I know what I'm about. I'm not compromising. The kind of teenager that can do that is the kind of teenager that knows there is a king in heaven that supersedes any king on earth. Do you know that there is a king in heaven behind every headline, everything that you experience and see in this world? And you live in fear of him and that's why you draw the line in the sand? What's the line in the sand for you? Look, the heat of the moment isn't the time to choose what you're willing to do and not to do. Middle of the night is not the time to start having moral or ethical deliberations on should I do this or not? It's choosing beforehand. What have you resolved not to do? The other thing with Daniel that we see here is he was fully immersed, but Babylon was not immersed in him at all. He was in Babylon, but Babylon was not in him. And he's like, I live here now. I have to figure this out. And newsflash, we live here now. We have to figure this out. One of the ways we do that is by drawing a line that we are not willing to compromise on. I want us to notice here, I think it's important for us all, God only intervened after Daniel took a step of faith and stayed true to the conviction that the Lord and he had figured out. Only once Daniel put his faith into action, only once he stuck his neck out, only once he jumped off the edge of the cliff metaphorically did God intervene. And if we want to live an unwavering life of seeing God move in our midst, we must draw a line and we must be willing to commit to it and stick to it. Live by it. We can be anywhere in the world. There can be any kind of literature, language, job, wherever it may be, and we can live an unwavering life. I want to end just by pointing out one of the really interesting realities in this story is how often it seems like God loses right before something amazing happens. Right? It looked like God had lost, right? Verse one, God's people lost. God's people were transported out. It looked like God had lost and then Daniel draws this line in the stand, takes a step of faith, and when it seems like the story was over, God intervened and does something amazing. And how often this happens throughout the Bible. You know, if, if, if you're really into like Bible and you, and you love to like study it, read the story of Daniel and Joseph over top of one another and notice the similarities. 
dragged off into a foreign land, learning the language, learning the literature, looking like everything had been lost. They both had been exiled. And what happens? They're in the king's court because they drew a line that they weren't willing to compromise. And what happens? God gives them the ability to see things, to interpret dreams. He gives them visions that then saves the nation. But it looked like God had lost in Joseph's story. Go to Joseph's great-grandpa, Abraham. Interestingly, Abraham was in the same place that Daniel was, Babylon. It looked like God had lost because God had given him a promise, but then he had gotten too old. It was impossible to have kids. It looked like God had lost. But then what does God say to Abraham when God intervenes in his life? Anyone know? I see you. And what does he say? I promise I will make your name great. But then it looks like God lost. But then God miraculously intervenes. Once they took a step of faith and held on to the promise and intervened, it's no wonder that centuries later in the very same part of the world in Babylon, Daniel's like, you can change my name all you want. I know the God of heaven promised my great, 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 great grandpa. Our name is great because we are his kids. Try your best, Babylon. But there's this repeated kind of thing where it looks like God had lost and God's people took a step of faith and God does the amazing. And so if you feel like you have lost, I promise you God never loses. You might lose a battle or two, but God never loses the war. And I want to I fast forward to the ultimate looking like God lost moment from a 15-year-old teenager in Daniel exiled to a foreign place. I want to fast forward to a baby a couple of hundred years later because a baby would also be exiled, leaving the comforts of home. This baby leaves the comforts of home and comes to earth. And what happens? His parents give him a name that speaks the truth of his identity. They say, you are Jesus because you will save people from their sins. And the boy Jesus, exiled, grows in a foreign land, learning language, learning literature, being challenged, getting mocked, talk about getting called all kinds of names, people trying to change all kinds of things about him, talk about being tempted with gratification. If you do this, Jesus, all this can be yours. Talk about stature. If you do this, Jesus, you can have all this. You, all the angels will bow to you. Jesus was isolated. They tried to indoctrinate. They tried to gratify. They tried to take out his identity. But Jesus drew a line, said, I know who I am. I know what I'm here for. I'm here for my father's business, and that's to save you. Jesus never compromised. And because Jesus endured all things, to their very end, even death on a cross, he now has the capacity and the ability to promise you no matter what you go through, 
I am with you. There's no isolation. There's no gratification. There's no indoctrination. There's no identification that I have not experienced. I can be with you wherever you go. There's no exile. You could go. That I can't be there with you. There's no pain. There's no experience. That she's saying, I, I know. I'm with you. We may feel like we have lost. But that's right when God does the amazing. I don't know your story. I don't know what brings you here today. I don't know where in your life it may feel like you have lost the battle, but I promise. That's right when God loves to intervene to do the amazing. Will you choose to look behind the headlight, the head, the headline of the war and say, God, where are you? I'm here. I need you. Reach out. Take a step of faith. Will you let God speak to you today? There is no place, person, or predicament on earth that we need to be afraid of because we have the God on the throne who longs to intervene in our lives today. So maybe today is just a reminder that you need to elevate your perspective to the God of the universe who reigns supreme. Maybe today is an opportunity to recognize that you maybe have let Babylon speak into you a little bit too much. Maybe you've let it isolate you. Maybe it's just time to say, you know what? I'm committing to the gathering because I want to be formed by the, word of the God, by the word of God, not the word of the world. Or maybe it's just a time to be like, I have to be way more intentional about what I take in. Maybe it's just committing to being gratified in the Lord and living out the identity that he has given you as his child. Trusting him. Maybe today is your chance to call someone and tell them who they are. It's never too late. Maybe today you need to draw a line in the sand and saying, I will not compromise, I will not cross. It's going to be costly, but I'm in. Or maybe you recognize you have crossed it. You just need to hear Jesus saying, I love you, I see you, come back. It's time. My arms are open, I love you. One thing I know that I know that I know is God is inviting every one of us to live with and in him. Daniel demonstrates the power of God at work in his life, and we're going to see that week after week here throughout this series. But today, for today, we have Jesus who has come to be with us in exile. Living a life of unwavering faith, church, it's unbelievably possible. Thanks be to Jesus.